Well, good morning and happy Easter, Redemption Hill Church. Thank you so much for joining us in worship. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 12, starting at verse 38, if you'd like to follow along. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Redemption Hill Church, or at least thanks for tuning in to this particular sermon from Redemption Hill Church. Uh, If you're watching or or listening, we're really glad that you're taking moments to listen to this particular Resurrection Sunday sermon. Um, If you are a member of Redemption Hill Church, you know that we've been having Zoom meetings right after the sermons, at least during this COVID-19 crisis. Um, We're not going to do that today. Instead, Um, I want to encourage you to pray with whomever you are with, whoever you are watching this with. Uh, Pray a a prayer of thanksgiving to God for all that he has done in Christ. I mean, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's thank God for that. And I also want to encourage you to pray for one another. Uh, Pray whoever's with you, just gather them, pray, and just be thankful to God uh, for for the individuals that that are around you. Uh, we'll, we'll start those Zoom meetings, uh, we'll begin or restart those Zoom meetings uh, next Sunday uh, if nothing changes in terms of our, our COVID-19 crisis. Uh, if you're not a member of Redemption Hill Church, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Uh, thanks for listening or watching this particular sermon. Um, I tell you what, we are a church who loves to make much of Jesus Christ. And uh, what better day to make much of Jesus Christ than this Resurrection Sunday? And so if you want to learn more about our love for Jesus or more, learn more about this particular uh, local church, you can go to redemptionhilldsm.org. Uh, there is a bunch of information about the church, about who we are, what makes us tick, things that we value. But we also have more sermons, of course. We, I do these things called under 10-minute devos, devotions, where I just encourage people to, to get their nose into God's Word. So I just kind of prod people along, and hopefully that carries you on. And then also, we also have podcasts on there as well. So however that can serve. But I just want to say thanks uh, for tuning in. You can always go to our website for more information. Well, I'm going I'm to pray, and then we'll get into uh, this morning's sermon. We're going to see what God has for us from Matthew 12, uh, verses 38 to 41. A curious resurrection text, perhaps. Um, but I think there's a lot here and a lot to show us about, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and then let's, let's get into it. Well, Father, first, we come thanking you for all that you have done in Christ. As Christians, we celebrate not only this day, but every single day, the resurrection of our Lord. The day he showed the world that he defeated death. He had power over death and sin, that the sinless Savior was, was completing his mission at the cross and then rising from the dead. And so we thank you, O oh God. And we know there's more to come. We know that there will be a day, a second advent, when our Savior will come back. But until that day, we continue to rejoice. 
we rejoice because of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, um, beginning actually (laughs) seems like an odd way to begin a new sermon series um, called Mercy and Wrath. Um, In the weeks ahead, my goal is to show you actually from uh, two Old Testament books of the prophet uh, Jonah and the prophet Nahum. I show you from those particular books uh, the mercy of God upon wretched sinners and the wrath of God upon wretched sinners. So I say that, and you might be thinking to yourself, or you might want to say to me, um, what, what does this have to do with Easter? Right? Uh, Pastor Sean, please uh, do not ruin my Easter by not talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does Jonah have to do with Jesus, right? Well, answer everything. The story of Jonah is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that this morning. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 12. Did you know that there are three recorded moments in the Gospels where Jesus actually references Jonah? Jesus specifically calls out an experience that Jonah has and then compares Jonah's experience with with his future, at that time, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. If you've been around Redemption Hill Church for longer than a cup of coffee, you know that some of the things that we love to do through the preaching of God's Word is is to make connections between the Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament. And we also love to see how a particular passage fits into the greater storyline of the entire Bible. So I'm going to allow the words of Jesus and His resurrection to, to place a banner, as it were, over this sermon series. This sermon series, well, we will go through uh, the book of Jonah and then look at a particular passage and get a good idea of uh, the book of Nahum. Uh, we really believe that uh, this, this sermon series of mercy and wrath actually points us to Jesus and tells us about His crucifixion and resurrection. In light of that, I think it'd be I think it'd be best to step back and retell uh, the story of Jonah, uh, so that we can see how Jesus understands Jonah, in light of his resurrection, and, and in light of what we read in Matthew 12, what what Brooks read just a few moments ago from Matthew 12. Like, w- what does Jesus understand? How does he understand Jonah? Let's let's back up and see if we can fill that in a little bit, because I think that's going to help us make some connections about what Jesus is trying to say to the scribes and Pharisees when he spoke to them. Many of you know the uh, story of Jonah, the, the reluctant prophet who was thrown overboard and swallowed by a great fish, right? There's many people think of a whale, but it says great fish there in the Hebrew. But if we back up to the beginning of the book of Jonah, we see what led to Jonah being thrown overboard, right? We, we know what happened, but the question is, why did that happen? Here's a flyby summary, and we'll, again, we'll get into the details next week. Uh, the book begins with God calling Jonah to preach a message to the Ninevites. Uh, but there was a problem. <laughs> Jonah is the problem. The, the Ninevites were the most ruthless and unmerciful 
people during the time of Jonah. Like you can, you can think about Nazi Germany and all the concentration camps. In the 1970s, we got the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia who killed approximately 1.5 to 2 million of its own people. Well, the Ninevites were worse. So when God tells Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, I, I imagine several thoughts kind of going through Jonah's head. Thought one, if I were Jonah, I would think this. You want me to go to the Ninevites where I could possibly die? Like, they are ruthless. <laughs> no way. That'd be thought one. Th- thought two. Nineveh does not deserve an opportunity to receive the mercy of God through repentance. They don't deserve the opportunity. One of the ironies that we're going to see in the book of Jonah is that Jonah is equally unmerciful in his own way to the Ninevites. Jonah seems to think he knows better than God. So what does Jonah do after God's like, hey, go preach to the Ninevites? He flees, it says, from the presence of the Lord. That particular language is used several times in chapter 1. He flees from the presence of the Lord. Now, kind of dumb, which we'll talk more about in the weeks ahead. But Jonah boards a ship and heads towards Tarshish. Nineveh is east, so Jonah decides to go west. As the ship was going west, the Lord sent a great wind that almost tore the ship in two. The sailors are trying to fight against the storm while, while they were praying to their own gods. And, and, and where was Jonah throughout all of this, right? Where was Jonah? Well, he, he decided to get his pillow and his, and his blankie and head below deck to take a nap. That's what Jonah did. Of course, this would have been unthinkable during a situation like this. And so the captain of the ship tells Jonah to call upon his God to calm the storm. Jonah uh, remained derelict in his duties, so nothing changed. Eventually, the crew aboard like casts lots, which is basically drawing straws. Whoever receives the the shortest straw is the one to be blamed for the storm. Jonah receives the short straw, and like he's he's given a series of questions by the crew. Ultimately, Jonah tells the crew to throw him overboard. But here's an interesting point in this particular passage in Jonah one. The crew initially did not listen to Jonah. They decided to row ahead. I'm not going to throw you overboard. However, the sailors eventually realized they may have no choice. So Jonah is eventually chucked overboard. What what happened? Immediately the storm ceased. Uh, The men on the ship praised God, praised the God of Jonah, and they gave sacrifices to the God of Jonah. It seems the sailors are, are more in tune with Jonah's God, more than Jonah is. <laughs> As for Jonah, and you all know the story, a great fish swallows him. Um, here is the last verse in your English translation. It's worth quoting since it's this verse that Jesus quotes in Matthew 12. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. It is the story of Jonah that serves as a sign for Jesus. That's why I give you a bit of the backstory. It's the story of Jonah 
that serves as a sign for Jesus. Hold on to that word sign. Uh, signs, religious or otherwise, are oftentimes a part of a person's makeup, right? Uh, we say things like, if, if this happens, then I'll do that. Like, here's one I, I, I've, I've often thought of. If, if the Vikings finally win the Super Bowl, then I'll stop complaining about everything, right? If they do that, then I'll do that. We do that all the time with stuff, or at least we, we make comments like that. Um, we participate, here's another example, a more serious example. We participate in the Lord's table and the bread and juice are signs of the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus at his crucifixion. Here's another example of how signs are used. There, there are times when signs can change the course of actually of history. Of history, In the 4th century, it is said that the great emperor Constantine was, was marching into battle when he saw a sign. Like He looked up and he looked at the sun and above the sun in in light was a cross. Along with the cross that he was looking at were these words, in tauto nika, which, which means, in this sign you shall conquer. <laughs> From that moment, it is asserted by some, not all, there's a lot of debate surrounding this particular story, but... The, but from that moment, Constantine thought it was through the cross which he would like just conquer the world. How much of the story is fact or fiction? I don't know, right? I got my doubts. But, but here's the point. The story helps us see the power of a sign. When it comes to Jesus, some see the sign and others do not. The sign that he's talking about in Matthew 12. Either you believe the story of Jonah is a sign of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or you think the story of Jonah is a nice myth, kind of one of those stories you tell your kids at night. How you understand the validity of Jonah may also indicate where you land on the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here are some more details about why Jesus refers to the story of Jonah. Uh, the language of three days and three nights, so it's Matthew 12, verse 40, is, is a little bit of an indi- idiom for Jesus, right? Uh, it makes a point and matches the Holy Week's chronology. The threes are not to be taken literally. Um, what is to be taken literally is that Jonah experiences a, a, a type of death, right, when he was swallowed by the fish. As we will see in Jonah 2, his prayer while inside the fish is very much this lament about his death. So he gets swallowed and he prays and he's just complaining. At the end of his lament, he finally relents to God's initial command and says, I will fulfill what you have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So after he finally, after he prays and laments, um, moments later, the Lord commands the fish to to vomit Jonah onto dry ground. Now, if you think there's no way a fish or whale could swallow a man only to spit him out a few days later, I will just simply say, tune in next week for my thoughts. For our purposes, we see in Matthew 12 a direct correlation between Jesus and Jonah. Everything I have said about Jonah is a, is a sign for Jesus. 
It's a sign pointing to a more significant death. It's a sign of a greater resurrection from death. Let me try to con- continue to explain what I, what I mean by sign here, because it's, it, it's really important to understanding um, what Jesus is trying to communicate to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, what I mean by a sign is that, is that one event potentially points to another future event. Um, for example, let's say I'm working in my, my yard, and I live out in the country, and so I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles. And so if, let's say I'm mowing the lawn, and it's sunny, but all of a sudden the, the clouds begin to kind of come in. Well, I can look out and say, hey, is there a storm coming? The weather patterns, the clouds are a sign for me. And so if I, I can even see rain in the distance. So if I see that, guess what I'm doing? I'm, I'm bringing, all, bringing everything in. We're going inside. There's a storm coming. The weather serves as a sign. It tells me something that is going to happen. The sign connection is made by Jesus in Matthew 12. It marks the beginning of the unfolding of Jesus' prophetic ministry about his own death and resurrection. His message is also signaling that he is the, the greater prophet than Jonah. As a matter of fact, the greatest prophet. Already in Matthew 12, we, we've seen how Jesus is a greater king, greater than King David. He's, a, he's greater than the temple. And after he talks about Jonah, he actually talks about Solomon, the wisest man. And Jesus, Jesus is even greater than him. Here's how one commentator explains, I think, and I think this is helpful, explains the differences between this pro- prophet Jonah and this greatest prophet Jesus. Jonah, we read in the, in the book titled, entitled his name, went to his enemies who he hated, right? He didn't like the Ninevites at all. It was because of his hatred that kept him from obeying God. Jesus went to his people whom he loved. Even though these people were sinful and rebelled against him, out of love, Jesus still went. Jonah came without preparation to this hostile people. Jesus came to the people of God after he had long prepared them to receive him as their redeemer. Jonah declared impending judgment, right? That was his message. Jesus preached the entire counsel of the gospel, which is judgment and hope. Jonah came with words. Jesus came with words that were validated and verified by his deeds. Uh, Jonah was a sinful man of God. Jonah was the sinless, or excuse me, Jesus was the sinless son of God. Jonah preached reluctantly, hoping the Ninevites would not repent and receive God's grace and mercy. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that his people would be able to obtain grace and mercy. It's interesting to see how Jonah connects with Jesus. Because as we go through the book of Jonah, what we're going to see is everything Jonah is not and everything that Jesus is. It's going to help us see why we make much of Jesus, not only on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, but every single day. Also in, in Matthew 12, we see Jesus setting up a contrast as he compares himself to 
Jonah. The scribes and the Pharisees posed this statement to Jesus. He says, hey, we want a sign from you. That's verse 38. But here's the deal. No matter how many signs Jesus does, uh, a person with a hard heart isn't going to care what happens. Like when Jesus feeds 4,000, like if your heart is set against Jesus, you don't care if it's 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 people. It's not going to care. Go back to my example about the weather for, for a moment. One of the other three times when Jesus reflects on the sign of Jonah is actually Matthew 16, so just a couple chapters after the one that we're in. Once again, the religious leaders are going after him about a sign, and Jesus retorts, you religious leaders might be able to understand signs of the weather by looking at the sky. Even I can do that. But you do not see the signs in your own Bible. That's what he says. They do not see the very signs in the Bible that point to Jesus as the Messiah. It's as if they were in this high school algebra class, and yeah, they, they may have been listening, may even look like they're listening or paying attention to the teacher, but they weren't retaining a thing. Their body may have been there, but their mind and their heart were set against the entire situation. They didn't care. How many signs does a person need to give before a person begins to understand what the signs are indicating? You know, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This generation, our generation, is no different than the generation of Jesus. Skeptics will never be fully satisfied with one sign, two signs, three signs, four signs, a hundred signs. Jesus had already done numerous miracles that were signs, yet for some, the hatred toward Jesus only increased every time he did a miracle. With every miracle performed by Jesus, the authority of Christ was, was, was being asserted, and these scribes and Pharisees didn't want their authority taken away. But why couldn't the religious leaders get behind Jesus and his ministry? Right? I think that's a fair question to ask. You're seeing these amazing things. Why not get behind him? Same question I could ask to somebody walking down the street. Oftentimes, in my experience, the answer to the question is pride. In my experience, pride is a massive barrier between a person and God. It was the pride of the scribes and Pharisees that kept them from knowing God. Notice in verse 38 that Jesus is not asked a question, right? It comes as a demand. As is the case with many religious leaders and Christian skeptics, demands are given without, um, especially right here, without, uh, without thoughtfulness and foresight. Jesus says here in Scripture, sees their evil heart and says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The word for adulterous in this particular passage has, some old, has an Old Testament equivalent of idolatrous. Uh, Jesus speaks to a people that is constantly turning in on themselves, right? Uh, they worship in the temple, but, but God is far from them. They say the prayers, make the sacrifices, they put the money into the treasury, but they do not know the mercy and grace of God. 
in many respects, they are a lot like Jonah. When God gives a command that requires some personal sacrifice, they make excuses and say, no, I'm good, I'm good. I like my life the way it is. Don't mess it up on me, God. What we see with the scribes and Pharisees is really simple. Pride, which creates selfish hearts. Pride, which creates hard hearts. When the sign of Jonah does come to fruition, they still will not understand. Apart from the grace of God illuminating their heart with the gospel, they will still make excuses. They will still be far from God. If if you're watching and listening to this Easter sermon and you are not a Christian, I want to be abundantly clear. The religiosity of a person cannot save them. A person's good works cannot save them. You do all the good works that you can, but they do not save a person. Uh, A person's skepticism will ultimately lead to permanent death. There is only one way to know God. There's only one way to be saved. The only way you can know God is by believing that Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross for your sins. You believe Jesus did not stay in the grave after he came down from the cross. But you know that he is risen. And Jesus now becomes the center of your life. It's, it's, it's like believing in the gospel, what you experience is like things begin to change. Or the way you view the world begins to change. Things begin to click. doesn't mean it's easy, but you begin to understand. Things make sense. It's because of Jesus. You, you can ask a lot of Christians, man. It's because of Jesus that they don't fear, but they experience freedom. Jesus compares the scribes and Pharisees to these Ninevites, right? In a spectacular twist of providence, Jesus says, and this is verse 41 of Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So right in front of these scribes and Pharisees who who desperately need the gospel, need to believe in Jesus, right? They have the one greater than Jonah right in front of them. When Jonah finally got his act together, he did preach to Nineveh. Nineveh did repent for their evil and wicked ways. And Jesus says, those ruthless Ninevites, remember what I said about them and comparing them, how they were worse than the Nazi Germany and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? These particular Ninevites, they're the ones now who are going to condemn the scribes and Pharisees for their hard hearts. The Ninevites are now going to be the ones to condemn the scribes and Pharisees for their wicked ways. Nineveh repented when Jonah preached. The sad truth is that these scribes and Pharisees, many of them will not repent even though someone greater than Jonah is right in front of them. Listen, I I do not want you to miss this. The message of the gospel 
is not doom and gloom. The message of the gospel is a rescue plan for people who only know doom and gloom. The message of the gospel is about how the mercy, grace, and love of Jesus Christ transforms wicked hearts and fills that heart with peace, with hope, and with joy. I mean, go back. Let's go back to the Ninevites a little bit more here. Um, On the surface, does it sound like the Ninevites deserve the mercy of God, right? If they were indeed as ruthless as I as, I, as they are, as, I, as they say I am, um, as, as I am suggesting, do they deserve the mercy of God? Well, God extended mercy. So if the Ninevites were not beyond the merciful hand of God, then you, if you don't know the Lord, are not beyond the merciful hand of God. It does not matter what kind of sins you have committed. Faith in Jesus cancels those debts through his atoning death. The message of the gospel is the same for us today, what what I'm sharing with you right now, as it was in the time of Jonah. You are evil and wicked. You have sinned countless times before a holy and just God. The same goes for me. The question in front of you is simply, do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you see that faith in Jesus, in his crucifixion and resurrection, is the path toward receiving and knowing the mercy and grace of God? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is not playing games by causing us to look at a nice story in the book of Jonah, right? No, he points to Jonah to help you see that he too had to die. But death could not hold him down. In God's sovereignty, Jesus rose from death to life to show death has no, has no claim on his life. In his greater resurrection, Jesus validates everything he had said and done during his earthly ministry. Just, let's just stay in the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. The last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, it says this. And this connects with what we've seen in Matthew 12 and what the sign that was spoken about in Matthew 12 being in Jonah 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men but the angel said to the women do not be afraid for i know that you seek jesus who was crucified he is not here for he has risen come see the place where he lay Then go, quickly tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote many of the letters in the New Testament, said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Christian faith hinges upon the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
If the resurrection did not happen, then he, along with every other Christian, is a fool. But what if I told you that a rational argument can be made to address the validity of the resurrection, right? Of course there will always be critics. I'm not not naive to that. I understand that there's always critics. Uh, There are plenty of modern-day scribes and Pharisees who refuse to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, regardless of the signs and regardless of the facts. But for those who are open, and perhaps that's you who's listening and watching. If you're open, here's some, here's some of my thoughts on the validity of the resurrection. It's what Jesus was reflecting on in Matthew 12 and pointing to Jonah, and it's what came to fruition in Matthew 28, what I just read. And here's some of my thoughts from a more of a rational perspective. If you were to ask me, Sean, prove the resurrection, here's where I would go first. Where is the dead body of Jesus? I, I, listen, I know there are various theories floating around about how to answer the question. I, I get that. But the point remains, no one has found the body of Jesus. All other bodies have been found and excavated and identified even, right? Uh, but not the body of Jesus. The second how does the skeptic explain the emergence of Christianity immediately following the earthly life of Christ? His earthly life, his crucifixion, and then resurrection. How does he explain the emergence of Christianity out of that? I mean, a bunch of devout Jews followed Jesus, right? These Jews followed Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. Everything they did was with Jesus. And they were devout Jews. And Jesus was teaching them something different. Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to die and rise from death, Right? Well, guess what? If that doesn't happen, there's a problem. If, you, if you've been told that and believing that, and like, I hope that's going to happen, and if, it, if your hope proves that it's shallow and pointless, guess what? You're not going to continue down that same path. The disciples knew this. Without the resurrection, they believed in a sham. But with the resurrection, everything that was said by Jesus have been proven to be true. Third, how does the skeptic make sense of the personal sacrifices of Christians? And to quote Pascal, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. I believe in those witnesses who get their throats cut. Christians did not sacrifice their life to kill others. Christians sacrificed their lives and continue to do so, I should add, so that others might truly live. What other faith traditions cause a person out of love to give up everything that they have? Like, I got a lot of personal friends, they've given up everything that, they've, that they have to go tell other people that they don't know about the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ. These kind of people are either crazy in the mind or they've been transformed in the heart. That kind of stuff just does not happen. Last, but certainly not least, I could go on here. 
what do the skeptics make of the New Testament account of various eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection? At, at minimum, we see in the New Testament that 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And sure, uh, the, 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 the question after that or the, or the statement after that is going to be, hey, I have a very low view of the Bible, right? Which I, that, would be, that, that statement would make sense. And, but here's, here's a point I would then come back with. Uh, there's no doubt from Christian and non-Christian scholars that the original uh, New Testament manuscripts are the most reliable ancient documents available right? You can't tell me you're going to uphold the accuracy of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and not the accuracy of the New Testament, which testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like on balance, this is, we have all these New Testament manuscripts. I guess those would be down here. And we got a few of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, and this is treated as gospel more than this. (laughs) To do so is just simply uh, intellectually dishonest. Listen, I could stand up here all day long and give a rational case for Christ. Uh, evidence, it's just the appeal to the mind, has an important role when I appeal to non-Christian friends and neighbors. But evidence will not by itself lead to a conviction in the human heart. At the end of the day, the only person who can regenerate a cold, dead heart and bring it alive with faith is the Holy Spirit. Only the work of the Holy Spirit shows a person the sign of Jonah. Only the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart and gives faith, faith to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The event that took place with Jonah became a sign for Jesus, which was eventually fulfilled by Jesus. You see, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the main storylines through the Bible, throughout the Bible, but it's also one of the main storylines, one of the main story arcs in every Christian's life. Because Jesus defeated sin and death, every Christian everywhere has hope. We have peace. We've been changed because of Christ. Just as Jesus rose from physical death to life, Christians have now gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you, Christian, who who might be watching or listening to this sermon, you can look forward to the day when Jesus, when, like Jesus, your decaying body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. How? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Friends, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done in Christ. And on this Resurrection Resurrection Sunday, we pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of rejoicing, knowing that we have a hope, not in ourselves, not in this world, but in the sinless Savior of the world who proved the grave couldn't hold him down. Our sin could not even hold him down because he rose to life. And so we thank you, God. 
We thank you for all that you have done for us by sending your son to be our savior. We're thankful and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.